Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for February 25th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. It is with a heavy heart that I introduce our guest today on Forthright Radio, Jonathan M. Katz. A few hours ago, Russian forces invaded the sovereign nation of Ukraine, crossing its borders from the north, east, and south. Reminiscent of the Nazi blitzkrieg with its rapidity and overwhelming force, the added dimension of President Putin's threats of the use of nuclear force add to the horror and fear, not just for the citizens of Ukraine, but for the entire world. Terrible as this is, It is also an appropriate time to examine our own history, which Jonathan Katz has done in his most recent book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of the American Empire, published in January 2022 by St. Martin's Press. Jonathan Katz is an award-winning journalist whose earlier book, The Big Truck That Went By chronicles his time in Haiti when the devastating earthquake struck on January 12, 2010, and the ensuing disasters brought on by the multiple failures of international aid projects. As he describes in our interview, Smedley Butler was there from the very beginning of the United States' imperialism, first as a 16-year-old second lieutenant in the Spanish-American War, where the United States secured cured Guantanamo Bay, then on to Puerto Rico, the Philippines, China, Honduras, Panama, Nicaragua, Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti. After a long career in the Marines, in which he pioneered counterinsurgency methods and the militarization of police forces to enforce the prerogatives of capitalist oligarchs, whom he eventually came to understand were calling the shots, He retired with the rank of general, the most decorated Marine in history. He then became the head of public safety for the city of Philadelphia, where he militarized that city's police forces, and he eventually synthesized his experiences and understanding of those years subduing nationalist forces in other countries, as well as battling gangsters in Prohibition-era Philadelphia, to write his book, War is a Racket, in 1935. He wrote, quote, War is a Racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitably, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. End of the quote. Smedley Butler spent his final years promoting democracy here in the United States and fighting fascism here and abroad, as well as trying to prevent what became World War II. Smedley Butler died of cancer on June 21, 1940.
Welcome to Forthright Radio, Jonathan Katz. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Jonathan, you begin your book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, the Marines, and the Making and Breaking of the American Empire, with this Haitian proverb, the one who deals the blow forgets, the one who carries the scar remembers. Before we discuss Smedley Butler and his time in Haiti, briefly share with our listeners a bit about your time there. For one thing, you were the only full-time American reporter in Haiti when that horrendous January 12, 2010 earthquake struck, in which an estimated 230,000 Haitians died. And you were actually the first to report to the world that it had happened, and then covered the aftermath. I moved to Haiti in 2007. I'd been reporting from the Dominican Republic for the two years before that for the Associated Press, and my AP bosses moved me over to Port-au-Prince. I'd been there for about two and a half years when the earthquake hit. It was horrible, and uh, I was very lucky to survive. A number of my friends did not. And I spent the next year after that reporting on the devastation and, more importantly, the failed international U.S.-led response. As you note, I was reporting for the AP at the time, and then I wrote my first book, The Big Truck That Went By, about that. That's an ongoing story. But anyway, back to your current book, Gangsters of Capitalism. It's a powerful history of the early imperial phase of U.S. extracontinental interventions, recognizing that the so-called manifest destiny phase can be characterized as the continental imperialist phase. You note that between 1898 and 1934, there were 62 U.S. military interventions in nine countries, not counting World War I. Cuba, the Philippines, China, Honduras, Panama, Nicaragua, Mexico, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti. Now, Smedley Butler played a part in each of these. Please tell our listeners how a 16-year-old Quaker boy from Philadelphia began this career. And lest listeners think, oh, this is just history, it doesn't affect our current lives. Among other things, Smedley Butler participated in the battles that resulted in the United States controlling Guantanamo to this day. Yep, exactly. And I would add, by the way, there were a very short list of, of interventions that the United States carried out that Butler did not participate in. One of them, which obviously I don't cover in the book because Butler wasn't part of it, it was a, an army job and not the Marines, was actually an invasion of Russia during the Russian Civil War, you know, in the, in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution, which I feel like is another thing that Americans don't remember, but is on the minds of some people who are making decisions about things that are happening in the world right now. And as you know, Butler participated in two separate invasions of China, which the Chinese government knows and Chinese people know, and they make a big deal about both in terms of historical memory and propaganda. 1898 happens to be a major turning point in the way the United States does empire. We transition from annexing and controlling land on the continent of North America to first annexing and then controlling through other means countries and, and territories overseas. Butler happens to be 16 years old when the first of those wars starts. He is living in Westchester, a town just off Philadelphia's main line, and his father is a congressman. His mother's family is, is a, a very wealthy mainline family of bankers and, and railroad investors. There's a huge American push to war 
1898. It's over Cuba, a colony of Spain at that time that has been fighting for its independence basically off and on for 30 years. They're getting pretty close to winning it. There is a Cuban war caucus. Cuban exiles, some, not all, but some are advocating for the United States to come into the war on their side, which they think will, will help drive out their Spanish oppressors. Others fear, including Jose Martí, who's in many ways the, the father of Cuban independence. He was the one who began the last push to war in 1895. He warns that if the United States gets involved, essentially they will never leave. And not only that they will never leave Cuba, but that it will start American expansion into Latin America. And he ends up being right. But there is a big propaganda push where this war caucus, Cuban exiles, American journalists, American expansionists, especially Teddy Roosevelt, who at the start of this thing is the assistant secretary of the Navy, they use for propaganda purposes very real Spanish abuses that are happening in Cuba. And the McKinley administration sends a battleship, USS Maine, to Havana Harbor, which explodes. Nobody knows exactly why it exploded. Today, even still, we don't really know the reason why it exploded. The McKinley administration actually never assigns blame, but the popular press and popular sentiment blames Spain. There are salacious articles written in American newspapers, in William Randolph Hearst newspapers, and in Joseph Pulitzer's saying that we have a guy in Havana who overheard the Spanish saying we're going to blow up the boat. And Butler is a high school student at the Haverford School outside of Philadelphia. And he gets caught up in this push to war. And he is inspired by American ideals and real American ideals that many Americans still hold today. I mean, I think all of us, to, to some extent, hold that at the very least, the United States should be a democracy, that we should be a force for democracy in the world. I mean, he takes it a little bit further, as Americans have throughout history, and says that Americans are needed, specifically he, a 16-year-old, is needed to, in his words, shoulder a rifle and help free little Cuba. So he lies about his age and joins the Marines as a second lieutenant at his very first duty station is he is deployed at the very first place that American troops come ashore in Cuba and a place where American troops still reside and control today, Guantanamo Bay. To make a long story short, we vanquish the Spanish in Cuba, and then we begin to take over their former colonies. So very briefly, explain to us how we hopscotch across the waters of the world. In the fight to declare war on Spain, and at that time, people still respected the constitutional provision that Congress had to declare a war, that it couldn't just be sort of done by, by executive fiat. There is a compromise between essentially the racist isolationists who don't want to annex Cuba because the people there, from the perspective of the architects of the Jim Crow South, which is getting established at the time, are not white and they're Catholic and they speak Spanish. And so an amendment is thrown into the Declaration of War that says that we won't annex Cuba. But nothing is said about the rest of the Spanish Empire. And because we've declared war on the Spanish Empire as a whole, Immediately, the U.S. military during this war fans out to other Spanish colonies. So the U.S. Massachusetts leaves Guantanamo Bay and goes and seizes Puerto Rico, which remains an American colony to this day. The Marines seize Guam and Wake Island. And also under the cover of this war, we seize Hawaii which obviously remains a state. The Queen of Hawaii had been overthrown a couple of years earlier, sort of in a, a private business white planters coup. In the big prize here for the United States is the Philippines, because the Philippines, it's enormous, 
a lot of people live there. It's about 10 million people at the time. It's about 150 million people now. 7,000 islands stretching the length of the west coast of the continental United States. And it is on the doorstep of China, which American businessmen then as now see as sort of an illimitable market that will achieve their wildest fantasies of growth and profit. So just as in Cuba, where we ally with the Cubans in their independence war, but then betray them, we go even further in the Philippines. We ally with the Filipinos, who are also in the middle of a rebellion against Spain, an independence war. And then we betray them. We colonize the Philippines very brutally. But it remains an American colony until 1946, when it's basically given its belated independence in the aftermath of, of the Second World War. Let's notice this pattern. There are people, as we did in the United States, who get sick of the colonial imposition from foreign countries. They organize, rise up, and fight against that oppression. Then the U.S. uses that as an excuse to come in and take over. And we cannot emphasize enough how brutal this sometimes was and often was. And you sort of alluded to this a little bit, but I want us to explore it more because we're still living with the impacts today of racism in all of this, both in terms of how we allowed ourselves to think it was okay to slaughter people on the continent of North America as we expanded West because they weren't quite as human as we were. They weren't the same kind of people. So it was okay. And we then extended that around the world. And I'm going to let you have your say about that. But where I'm going with this is the Supreme Court ruling in the so-called insular cases. So say what you want to about the white man's burden and racism, and then we'll get to the insular cases. Racism, white supremacy plays a critical role. In, in this entire period and in the rise of American empire. Essentially, everyone involved in, in a decision-making position within the United States and most of the military role, although there, there, were, there were black soldiers who fought quite valiantly, especially in, in Cuba and also in the Philippines as well. Everybody who's involved in a, in a policy-making role is what you would call from the perspective of the 21st century, an adamant white supremacist. And I think they wouldn't have denied it themselves at the time. I mean, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is rightly looked at by some modern progressives, leftists, for having made the national park system and expanding the role of the federal government in monitoring food safety and things like that. But he, in his writings, was adamantly a white supremacist. He was adamant that it was the role of white people, and from his perspective, it was specifically the English-speaking white people of the world, to conquer what he called the waste spaces of other peoples. And his allies were very adamant. They almost sort of had a, a kind of a, they obviously weren't Marxist, but like almost like a, a, a Marxist-style teleological bent that they were, they were looking at sort of the inevitability of history, <laughs> that, that it was the destiny of white people to take over the world and make it profitable and fertile and perfect. And they go into the conquest, especially the Philippines, very, very explicitly with this goal that essentially Americans, white Americans, will be able to manage the lands of the Philippines better than Filipinos can. And the Filipinos give us problems that it is totally within our rights and historical inevitability to eliminate them from the earth. There are blatant quotes to this effect. I cite them in the book. 
this is not a totally straightforward process. There are other white supremacists in the United States that have a different view of what white people should be doing. These were, for the most part, neo-Confederate Southerners who, having lost slavery, want to sort of burrow into the, the revanchist world that they have left and use their time basically dominating non-white peoples here, and especially in their home states and in the South. And as I was noting sort of in the fight over what to do with Cuba in 1898, that's kind of the fight. It's between the racist expansionists who say, like, the duty of, of white Americans is to conquer the world. And then you have, like, the Jim Crow neo-Confederates who are saying, like, no, let's just focus on killing all the black people that we can here. And the compromise between those two groups comes out of the Supreme Court in the insular cases. So essentially... It's a series of cases built out of sort of random incidents, a murder case here, a, a dispute over property there. And each case has to do with sort of a, a different island that the United States has just colonized. But what ends up happening is that over the course of these cases, the principle is established that just because the United States has conquered your territory, so just because the U.S. flag is flying over Puerto Rico, or just because the U.S. flag is flying over the Philippines, does not mean that Puerto Ricans or Filipinos, people in Guam or the Virgin Islands or whatever, have the same rights as people on the mainland. And those rights include representation in Congress, the ability to, to vote for, for president, and other things as well. And those laws still govern life today, especially in Puerto Rico. They're decided by the same court that decided uh, Pussy versus Ferguson. So it comes out of the same tradition of racial apartheid that was governing much of the United States at the time. We then apply to basically our possessions in the rest of the world. I want to briefly quote some of the language, the so-called insular cases. Puerto Rico was not a, quote, foreign country, end quote, but it was foreign to the United States in the domestic sense, quote, inhabited by alien races, end quote, who could not be governed, quote, according to Anglo-Saxon principles, quote, like the Bill of Rights, for example. And you write, Jonathan Katz, that the Nazis would use this second-class citizenship concept in their system. And on February 15th of 2022, it was reported, headline, Civil Rights Groups to Biden DOJ Stop Using 100-Year-Old Racist Precedents in Court. I quote from that, a group of 13 civil rights organizations sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland last week calling on the Department of Justice to stop using a series of racist, century-old Supreme Court precedents in its court arguments. Goes on to say all the different organizations that are the usual suspects, the ACLU, etc., NAACP. Today, the insular cases still deprive the more than 3.5 million 
Americans living in America's colonial territories of the right to vote in federal elections, equal application of the law, and equal access to federal benefits and rights, despite those people's claim to birthright citizenship as provided for in the 14th Amendment. And this article goes on to quote some very recent cases, and there are still cases in front of the Supreme Court today that are hinging on these cases. What was happening in the late 19th and early 20th century, in many aspects of life and policy and war, it's known as the redemption period. So, you know, Reconstruction ends in 1876. And what's happening in the decades that follow is sort of a rapprochement between, as this historian Adrian Len Smith puts it, northern capital and, and southern capitalists, right? I mean, so essentially white people whose parents, in many cases, uh, sometimes they themselves, had fought on opposite sides of the Civil War are sort of trying to come back together, and they're coming back together over a kind of white supremacist comedy. And it does not happen cleanly. There's a lot of fights about it. Teddy Roosevelt plays a really instrumental role in this because Sometimes in the same speech, sometimes in the same lines of the same speech, he's decrying lynching in the American South, but then using that not to promote social justice and equal rights overseas, but to just sort of brand his political opponents as hypocrites, the isolationists who are pro-lynching but anti-expansion in the Philippines. He's basically saying the real sin here isn't your lynching, the real sin is your hypocrisy. We should be doing this everywhere <laughs> and not just at home. That's a bit of a, a bit of oversimplification. And that's what's happening in the insular cases. And they're still good law. And the thing is that in terms of understanding American history since, this all seems maybe somewhat far away for people who are sitting at home and listening today. But A, it's really not. All of these things are happening basically between the Civil War and World War II, which are two events that, that often are very front and center in, in people's present-day historical imaginations. But the other thing is, that if you want to sort of consign these things to the past, then you would have to say, well, this is the year, or these were the years in which these debates stopped and recompense was made and that doesn't exist. And as you note, these laws and these Supreme Court cases are still good law. They're still being used today. And it's because we never had a moment where, as a society, we revisited these things that we did because we just kept doing them. We just kept doing them in new contexts and new styles. But it was all it was always sort of a a seamless handover from from one generation to the next. Jonathan Katz, I sort of cringe each time you say that it's good law. I would prefer to say it's still applicable law. That's fine. Yes. Very good. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm, just, I'm using I'm using good laws as a term of art. I just mean that it is law that authorities still use to justify their decisions and, and to justify their expansive power. I'm not I'm not saying that they're good. I have no I have no doubt that there are some who do consider it good law in that sense, but I'm not among them. We're speaking with Jonathan Katz. His latest book is Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. We really do need to talk very, very briefly about, so Smedley's in Cuba, then he goes to the Philippines. There's just awful stuff that happens in the Philippines. We won't go over that. Then he's on to northern China. And 
this is important not only for what happened in that era, but as you pointed out earlier, Jonathan, China remembers this, even if Americans don't. And it informs how they relate, not just to the rest of the world, but specifically to Europeans and Americans. So very briefly, because I want to get on to the Caribbean. Tell us about the Boxer Rebellion and how the U.S. Marines were involved. In short, in the last years of the 19th century and 1900, there's a uprising of Chinese peasants against foreign influence. And it really takes the form of reprisals against foreign missionaries as well, and maybe especially against Chinese Christians, some of whom were recent converts and others of whom had been you know, Christian for, for centuries at that point. China is a monarchy at the moment. The Qing dynasty is in charge. And there's a little bit of, of tension for a moment about what the Qing dynasty is going to do with these peasant mobs. But they end up deciding to work with them because the Qing dynasty is also dealing with its own problems with foreign influence and foreign incursion in the form of the gobbling up of China, especially China's coast, by foreign powers. And this occasions an invasion by eight nations, including the United States, UK, Russia, Japan, and several other European powers to basically put down this group. And they're known as boxers because they were practicing a form of martial arts, but people in the West didn't know what Kung Fu was. So they just described it by the only word that they had available to them, which was, it looks like they're boxing. And Butler is there as a teenager and participates in this invasion. And it is an extremely brutal invasion. It's a huge war. I found actually evidence while I was researching gangsters, that the British forces in this invasion force deployed chemical weapons for the first time that they were ever deployed on a battlefield in history. Generally, historians believe that they were first deployed during the First World War, but, but I found evidence that, that they were deployed in China. And these invading forces also engage in wanton looting. And after the Boxer Rebellion, as it's known, is crushed, they then engage in reprisals in which they kill basically anybody that they suspected being a boxer, which ends up being many more civilians who were not involved in, in this war at all. And China, in terms of their official history, their official pedagogy, they remember a period called the Hundred Years of Humiliation, which begins with the first successful foreign invasions in the mid-19th century and the Opium Wars. And then that period, of course, this is a history that is being taught and propagated by the Chinese Communist Party. That period then ends with the victory of, of the Chinese Communists and the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949. But the Boxer War, or as they call it in China, the War of the Eight-Power Allied Force, occupies a central role in that. And people in school in China, uh, and obviously we're talking about quite a lot of people here, they learn about this war and it occupies, to some extent, a similar size piece of their historical memory and the way that they understand themselves today as the Civil War does to Americans, right, in 2022. And China uses this to justify all manner of things. But specifically, if you read you know, Chinese official statements, Chinese propaganda, Chinese speeches, when they launch a, a new aircraft carrier or when they open a new overseas base, they always refer to how the West and specifically the United States used to bully them 
and the, the Chinese way out of that, the way that they officially see themselves as reacting to what they call the hundred years of humiliation is by strengthening themselves so that they basically become the bully so that nobody else can bully them anymore. But I'm not saying that to absolve the Chinese government, authoritarian, uh, often horrendous government of doing the things that they do. I'm just noting that they use this history that Americans are completely unaware of. And so when they talk about how the United States used to bully them, because Americans don't know these things, because these histories have been suppressed or forgotten in the United States, we are like, oh, well, they just must be, you know, making all this up. And then we can't even participate in the conversation. Well, Jonathan Katz, that's one of the major services you've done for all of us in writing this book, Gangsters of Capitalism. And we haven't really talked about the capitalism part of this at all so far. But the people who were making money in the opium wars, those fortunes often are still dominating politics even to this day. We're going to get to that. In fact, let's skip Medley Butler's return to the Philippines, where William Howard Taft, who's not yet president, is in charge of civilian affairs. And General Adna R. Chaffee is the military governor general. He spent 30 years fighting in the Indian Wars in the United States. We're not going to dwell on this. I just want listeners to know that's something they'll learn about if they read your book. Then he's on to the Isthmus, then Nicaragua, because this is where Smedley's starting to get the idea of what's really going on. He writes a letter, I think, to his mother, with whom he's very close, of disgust. And he's noticing the role that bankers, U.S. bankers, have in all of these affairs that he's involved in, that they are controlling without having colonies. They're substituting dollars for bullets and it's called dollar diplomacy. So talk about what's happening with Smedley Butler in Nicaragua and his evolution. Yeah, so there are two things that are happening in Nicaragua, both sort of political and personal with, with Butler at this moment. And this goes back to the Philippines very briefly. I mean, as you noted, you know, it was a very, very brutal war. And it did occasion a, a lot of backlash in the United States, not only from sort of the racist isolationists, but also from more genuinely humanitarian anti-war people, which included most prominently, uh, well, it also included Jane Addams, you know, the, the founder of social work, but it also included Mark Twain, who was easily the most popular and, and famous American writer of the time. And he is using his, his pen to write uh, scathing editorials decrying U.S. imperialism in the Philippines and also in China. And this is becoming politically inconvenient for a lot of people in the United States. And, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, his presidency ends and the new president is William Howard Taft, who, as you noted, comes up. He rises up through the civilian administration of the occupation or of, of the colonization, rather, of the Philippines. And he knows that he does not have the personal popularity or the force of, of personality to sort of overwhelm this sort of anti-war, anti-imperialist sentiment through sheer force of will. He doesn't want to deal with it. And so what the Taft administration does is they decide to move 
American imperialism a little bit more behind the scenes. Instead of outright colonizing other countries, um, which is a very expensive proposition, and you know the Filipinos fought back very bravely and, and very viciously in defense of their own freedom and their own independence. And the Taft administration realizes you can do it a lot more easily if you just sort of control a country from the back end, specifically by taking over its financial system. And this is known as dollar diplomacy. So what happens in Nicaragua is that we basically take over the Nicaraguan banking system. Two American banks, Brown Brothers and J.W. Seligman and Company, charter a new National Bank of Nicaragua. It is chartered in Connecticut and headquartered in New York. And they issue a new currency, and they, we control the customs houses, and we install ultimately a puppet president, Adolfo Diaz, who happens to be the accountant for a Pittsburgh mining syndicate. And while this is happening, there are still, just as there were in the Philippines, just as there were everywhere that, that we try to do these things, there is resistance. And in order to crush the resistance and protect the American puppet president and the U.S.-created Nicaraguan financial system, they have to send in the Marines. And Butler comes, and the thing that's happening for him in his personal life, or his professional life at that moment, is he's just been promoted to major. So as the junior most ranked of flag officers, he can give himself orders and make decisions about who, who he talks to and where he goes. And for the first time in his life, he's really talking to people other than the, the other Marines in his units. And so he gets a very clear picture of what's happening, that the reason why the Marines are there is to protect the banks, the American banks and the American political interests that are trying to basically take control of Nicaragua by other means from, from the background. I and mean, he writes about that to his parents. And I would note, I and mean, I talk about in the book, like he's not the only U.S. military officer who, who sees this. I mean, other, other senior military officers, it's obvious to everybody at the time. But it's also important to note that this doesn't keep Butler from doing anything. And Butler ends up creating new problems in Nicaragua and new political realities in Nicaragua that remain with us to this day. Among other things, as I note in the book, Butler plays a peripheral, but peripheral, but central, that's a, a contradiction, but, but he, but I, I think that's actually the best way to put it because he kind of put, plays an ancillary role in a central uh, life of a central figure in which he sort of radicalizes personally Augusto Sandino who is the founder and namesake of the modern day, well, the, the, the original and, and, and uh, the, the namesake of the modern day Sandinista movement. Yeah, which is in another tragic phase at this point, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, you do note the irony that the United States invades all of these small countries takes over the economy, destroys whatever democratic impulses they have for self-government. So we've got U.S. invasions at the beginning of the 20th century and the rhetoric used about refugees from these countries trying to enter the United States is also they are invading us. Yeah. We won't dwell on that. I think it's pretty self-evident. Okay, so Smedley Butler is very good at what he does. He leaves Nicaragua. He goes on to the Canal Zone. He lives there. He even brings his wife and family there. You do a wonderful job describing what it took to create the Panama Canal. 
Then he goes up to Veracruz, Mexico, and the Tampico affair, which is all about oil. Right. And that goes into the Mexican Revolution with Pancho Villa, et cetera, et cetera. But I want us to move on to Haiti. Sure. And your chapter on Haiti begins with undercover Marines robbing the National Bank of the Republic of Haiti of $500,000 in gold bars, which was half of the national reserves. And I might remind our listeners, Haiti is distinguished for being the first black republic in the entire world. They successfully rebelled against France. And in doing so, they had to end up paying reparations to France for freeing themselves. That took over a 100 years to accomplish. I forget exactly when they finally finished it, but it destroyed the economy of the country. Anyway. Well, so the the principle of that was paid off in, in 1886. But what happens is that they take out uh, subsidiary loans to basically fix their balance of payments. And they take those loans out from many of those loans are taken from American banks, specifically Citibank. And it is Citibank, and especially a guy who people who read the book will, will get to know a little bit, named Roger Farnham who pops up in multiple conspiracies and most multiple uh, American machinations and, and personal, personal corruption from behind the scenes in many different countries. But he plays a major role in Haiti. He has gone to, at this point to work for Citibank. And he goes to William Jennings Bryan, who is at that point Woodrow Wilson's secretary of state, and argues that essentially that the Marines should rob this bank, the central bank, because the Haitian government had taken out loans from Citibank and Citibank wanted to make sure that they were repaid, so they, they, they just they just took, as as Brian defends it, a large private withdrawal. This sets Haitian politics into a tailspin. It ends in the assassination of a Haitian president, the last assassination of a Haitian president before Jovenel Moise was assassinated last year in 2021. And in response to the assassination of this president, who is nominally, he's, he's sort of a pro-American president, the one who gets assassinated in 1915. He's, he's one who's, who's willing to do business with the United States. In the wake of this assassination, Woodrow Wilson orders a full invasion and occupation of Haiti, in which Smedley Butler plays a critical role. Butler leads the 1st Battalion of the 1st Marines, and he will then remain in Haiti for several years. And I also w- want to note, I don't think that listeners, your show will be particularly scandalized by the use of the word occupation. But some people who I've written for in the past have been when referring to Haiti. And it should note that the United States occupation of Haiti was the official name for what the Americans were doing there that the Wilson administration came up with at the time. And they came up with that word as a way of semantically differentiating it from colonization and annexation. They were saying, we're not annexing Haiti, we're just occupying it for a little while. But that occupation ends up lasting for 19 years. It is extremely brutal. And that 19-year period of direct U.S. control of Haiti is a record of occupation that is only broken by the United States very recently in Afghanistan, where we were for, for just over 20 There was a ferocious battle in which Smedley Butler fought, the Battle of Fort Riviere. I won't go into the details of that, but 
I do want to talk about Butler's role in dissolving the parliament of Haiti over a clause against foreign ownership in their constitution. So the parliament was dissolved for 12 years. Butler ordered the, he went to the legislature and did that in person. He ordered the record of the votes from the parliamentary archives, ordered the press not to print details. Then later on, there was a plebiscite. Oh, we forgot to talk about Butler's role in the creation of the gendarmerie. Yeah, he basically, he creates a, he creates a, a client army, a client constabulary force in Haiti, which ends up being the model for future U.S. client armies all over Latin America, the army of the Republic of Vietnam, for people who remember the Vietnam War, um, all the way through, again, essentially the present day in, in the Afghan National Army, which obviously no longer exists, but, but, but folded rather spectacularly last year. Just to finalize, there's a plebiscite that the U.S. imposes on it. The gendarmerie are at the polls. Less than 5% of people voted, and it passed overwhelmingly, and it mandated that there wouldn't be a parliament, but a council of state appointed by a puppet president and deciding that all U.S. acts are ratified and legal. Okay, we've got stuff. We're not covering important stuff, but I want to get to 1934 when this fellow Gerald C. McGuire visits him. Take it from there, Jonathan. So at this point, Butler is retired from the Marine Corps. And he is approached in 1933 and 1934 by a representative of a Wall Street financial institution. The guy's name is Gerald C. McGuire, Jerry McGuire. And his proposal is for Butler to lead a coup against Franklin Roosevelt, in short. The slightly longer version is that he wants Butler to lead a army of half a million World War I veterans into Washington, where they are going to intimidate Franklin Roosevelt into either resigning or delegating all of his powers to a cabinet secretary, who in effect would become the first fascist dictator of the United States. And the reason why McGuire and more specifically McGuire's boss, Grayson Murphy and his allies wanted Butler to do this was because they were trying to overthrow the New Deal, which they knew they couldn't destroy at the ballot box. So they were going to try to take a page out of what was happening in Europe at that moment and do it by force. How did Smedley Butler respond to these overtures? He tells on them. He goes to Congress. Then he testifies in front of a two-man subcommittee of the uh, House Un-American Activities Committee, actually. But what ends up becoming HUAC at this point is sort of a special committee that is convened just for a year to investigate primarily Nazi propaganda and, and attempts by European fascists to infiltrate the United States. And he tells them everything he knows. He also enlists to help a news reporter from Philadelphia, who Butler got to know during another moment in his life where he was running the Philadelphia Police Department and helping militarize American police by taking the, the counterinsurgency and foreign constabulary experience that he had and bringing it to the streets of American cities. But he got to know this particular reporter. And so he sort of sets this reporter loose to do his own independent investigation, which essentially confirms everything that Butler had found. And the congressional committee 
they hold hearings for a couple of weeks, but essentially the only people really of note that, that testify are Butler and Jerry Maguire. They don't even call in Maguire's boss, much less the bigger names who, according to Butler, Maguire had proposed were going to be emerging from behind the scenes, which included the DuPonts, Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors, the heads of Phillips Oil, Sun Oil, General Foods, etc. So yeah, that's what happens. Known as the business plot. Here is Smedley Butler himself, recorded on November 21st, 1934, talking about the business plot. I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men, which would be able to take over the functions of government. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institution. I want to retain the right to vote, the right to speak freely, and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. So this guy, McGuire, he's been traveling to Italy where he's enamored with Mussolini in France, where the Croix de Feur has an assault on the French National Assembly on February 6, 1934. And that actually forced the Social Democratic Prime Minister to resign shades of January 6, 2021. And McGuire's uh, naming this... Uh, organization, the American Liberty League, and it's a society to maintain the Constitution, so shades of the Oath Keepers, etc. And Butler's not having anything to do with them, but he does go to Washington, D.C. to speak to an organized group of people camping out in Washington, D.C. Tell us about that and the Battle of Washington. So part of the reason why McGuire and his boss, Grayson Murphy, single out Butler as somebody to lead their coup, because this is a question that a lot of people who, who have heard of the business plot have, is like, well, why would you ask Smedley Butler to do this thing? And a big reason is because of what had happened two years before. So in 1932, veterans basically converge on Washington, D.C. to demand the payment of, of promised back pay from the First World War. And in, in short, it's known as the bonus. And so they're known as the Bonus March. And they are opposed by the establishment in D.C. Herbert Hoover's president of the time. They're derided by the press. They're derided by most of Congress. But Butler comes and sides with them. And nine days after Butler comes to their camp to give a speech, the police move in. Two of the bonus marchers are shot. And then the army comes in. And the army is led by Douglas MacArthur, as well as Dwight Eisenhower and George Patton, who were majors at the time. And they violently suppress this month-long protest by basically charging with bayonets, firing chemical weapons, 
and burning the encampment to the ground. And that's known as, as the Battle of Washington. And while the politics of the bonus marchers were, I think, diametrically opposed in the main to what the business plotters wanted, it was sort of a mass movement of impoverished veterans asking for help from their government, as opposed to a small number of elites trying to overthrow the government for trying to help people like the bonus marchers. But nonetheless, if you squint, and certainly if you see any of the, the newsreel footage of Butler addressing this mob, you see what these elites, what the business plotters wanted. They wanted a mass of World War veterans to converge on the Capitol, led by a general who they loved and trusted, like Smedley Butler. And, you know, obviously they end up miscalculating, but, but you know, you could sort of see what they were thinking. Here is Smedley Butler addressing the bonus marchers camped out by the Anacostia River in southeast Washington, D.C., just days before they were attacked by the D.C. police and the U.S. military. Makes me so damn mad a whole lot of people speak of you as tramps. By God, they didn't speak of you as tramps in 1917 and 18. Now, let me tell you something. I've been all over the world. I've seen you fellas on the streets in Washington. There isn't this well-behaved group of citizens in the world that's sitting right in this camp. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we've ever had. Pure Americanism. Willing to take this beating as you've taken it. Stand right steady. You keep every law. And why in the hell shouldn't you? Who in the hell yeah, has done all the bleeding for this country and for this law and, and this constitution anyhow, but you fellas. You quote Franz Fanon, what is fascism but colonialism in the heart of a traditionally colonialist country? You draw certain parallels between the fascism that was affecting many countries in Europe, but also the United States in the 1930s. I dare say that because you visit many of the countries that you speak about in your book, Gangsters of Capitalism, that you are actually trying to draw certain connections between this history and our current era. Share with our listeners what you want us to think about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the big lesson that I drew in, 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 in writing the book is that the things that we do abroad don't stay abroad. And the ways in which we treat people who, who we think of as being you know, less than us somehow often end up being visited on our neighbors or ourselves. And that was something that I think Butler belatedly came to in his life. I think his, his experience in this with this sort of a fascist coup plot is one of the things that really drove that home for him. As we noted earlier, he dissolved a parliament at gunpoint in Haiti. He, de he destroyed democratic and self-rule movements all over the world. And now some of the same people, now being 1934, some of the same people who, who had led him into those things, who had been, as he noted, drawing up the battle plans practically, you know, and, and giving the orders, now wanted to do the same thing at home. And today, in 2022, the big thing that changes all of this in the American imagination is World War II. We don't have time to, to get into it, and Butler spends the, the end of his life trying to prevent the United States from getting involved in it. But the American self-story of, of World War II becomes kind of an inoculation a little bit against fascism, or at least outright fascism, 
in the years after 1945 because the Nazis are so grotesque and so almost horrifically cartoonishly evil in everything that they did, and and especially the the disclosures of, of the atrocities of the Holocaust. But the generation that remembers those things firsthand is leaving us. They're either extremely, extremely old or, or, or sadly gone. And so that kind of direct historical memory has left. And we are kind of back in a period, much like the 1930s, where a lot of people are sort of looking to authoritarian movements, people like Vladimir Putin, to as, as models that they want to replicate in the United States, as, as, as FDR noted in his day, that there's a sense that they have recognized they are uniquely positioned to, to meet the problems of their time, whether it is COVID-19 or climate change or racial division or whatever, all the problems that we have today. And there are a lot of people who, just as in the 1930s, just like the business plotters, who look to you know Mussolini and, and, and in some cases to Hitler for inspiration, you have people today who are looking to authoritarians and dreaming of our own authoritarian, you know, Heron Volkish movement in the United States as, as a way of, of moving forward. And Butler, he's not a hero, he's an anti-hero because he did a lot of these horrible things, but he sort of, in a way, recognizes what Franz Fanon was saying that fascism is colonialism practiced in the, in the heart of a traditionally colonialist country. And that if we don't take serious stock of the things that we are doing as a country today, overseas, just murdering people with impunity from the sky, and really try to establish democracy and human rights and an equitable rule of law for everyone, that ultimately this will only empower people who, who are going to take us into the, the darkest recesses of our own history and could accomplish the things that the business plotters dreamed of accomplishing way back then. Well, Jonathan Katz, thank you so much for writing your book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire, and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You have just heard a conversation with Jonathan M. Katz about his book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of the American Empire, published by St. Martin's Press. It's difficult but necessary to learn about what Americans have done in other countries, and it's good to remember Americans who have devoted themselves to assisting the unfortunate in those same countries. Such a one is Dr. Paul Farmer, who died in his sleep in Rwanda on February 21, 2022, at the age of 62. It is believed that his heart simply gave out, which, considering how much his heart worked serving the suffering and abandoned in Haiti and elsewhere, is not a surprise, however saddening. Saying that there was no point in treating patients for diseases without also addressing the dire circumstances that contributed to the illnesses. He addressed the social structures at the roots of illness. He was instrumental in creating the international organization Partners in Health, which radically changed how health care was thought of and delivered. When he was awarded the $1 million Bear Gruen Prize, it acknowledged how he, quote, had reshaped our understanding of what it means to treat health as a human right and the ethical and political obligations that follow, end of the quote. 
During the COVID pandemic, Paul Farmer vigorously insisted that intellectual property barriers be dropped that prevented pharmaceutical companies from sharing their technology. He said, quote, It's not just about health security in the sense of defending yourself. It's not just about charity, although that's not so bad. It's also about pragmatic solidarity with those in need of assistance, end quote. We honor his memory and are grateful for his life and his work. Dr. Paul Farmer, presente. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>